0: Winterhawk Podcasting presents Lower 48.
1: episode 10
0: derby hey cammy hey cammy how's it going um sorry it's been a
1: little bit yeah we
0: uh had a bit of a detour
1: i mean we did tell you about it uh but it was really far out of the way and so we didn't really um have much service while we were out there but we've been helping zach's like 98 year old great great aunt great
0: aunt betsy (laughs) She, honestly, she's she's a real gem, though. She's a real southern gal, and uh, yeah. but she... There's a few dicey racial moments, but... Yeah, you, you know. know.
1: <laughs> Overall, a very Overall, pleasant visit. Very, very nice. Um, um, I think, it, you know, you know me. I love old stuff, and so...
0: That's why you love my aunt.
1: Yeah, so cleaning out that... We, so, sorry, to fill you in, Cammie. We went to help her clean out an old storage unit that she had just, like, on her property
0: yeah it's it she lived on this farm and uh you know the the barn had been accumulating just junk for the last 70 years and most of most of the stuff was
1: really like rotted and stuff but and like frankly quite gross but there was some really cool old like photo negatives that we found and like just different things that i'm super we've got a box full of stuff now we're gonna take it home we're gonna scan it We're going to try to digitize some of this stuff. Yeah, it's going to
0: be a,
1: it's going to, it's, it's, it's a little piece of history. Austin's
0: looking forward to it more than I am. That's because you're not going to
1: do any of it. Yeah, you're right. It's just going to be me. (laughs) But, um, but anyways, we're back on the road now. Um, We're just leaving. So uh, we're, we left her place. Now we're driving through Kentucky. Um, We're on our way up to Ohio, the next stop in the Tibbs Journal.
0: Yeah, we got a little bit of a late start off of her property. So we went to Lexington just Mm -hmm. for the evening, just so that we It was kind of like a halfway point. Yeah, and we were just, we just figured that we would, uh, that we'd, you know, take some time to recuperate and uh, and then be right back on it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was interesting because while we were there, we just wanted to go grab a bite to eat. So we left our hotel and uh, we were walking the streets you know, we decided to go to a Waffle House because uh, you know it's a real Southern original. Um, but as we were walking, uh, we came across this this woman uh, named Allison. And Allison, she was a street performer, I guess. Yeah,
1: it was it was kind of there was like a little area kind of by the park where there was like a few different little like buskers, you know, doing stuff. And she, she was kind of off to the side. She wasn't really part of that group. Um, but we kind of... We tried to avoid the group. And that's why we ran across her. <laughs> right. And she kind of pulled us in. And she... She wanted to tell us our fortunes. And so, you know
0: us. We're right. like, all right. We're suckers. The, well, second, we're the, second, like... <laughs> the second somebody offers to do anything like that yeah, for us, and, we are 100% you know, in.
1: And we're probably going to, like, make some jokes and, like, maybe lie a little bit to see, like, what she's going to tell us that's not true, you know. But, yeah, it was uh, – we we couldn't help ourselves.
0: As we got to talking, she asked us what we were doing, which – Classic. Everybody asks us what we're doing. But after we explained what happened, she just started talking to us. And she told us
1: this kind of weird story about her past.
0: This is the story of Alison Cromwell. Premonitions have always been a feature of my family's history. The oldest known example I've seen was a journal entry made by my great-grandmother who wrote about the slaying of President Lincoln about four days before it happened. Most people I tell that to wonder why she didn't try to prevent John Wilkes Booth from assassinating the president. Well, I wonder what they think an unemployed woman who lived in rural Tennessee was supposed to do about that. Such is the nature of our sight. We have been burdened with the knowledge of what will be but never granted the ability to use that understanding to do anything about it. That's why, when I finally came of age, I decided I would change that. The Cromwell site usually manifested between 8 and 9 years old. The first time a vision would occur would be while you slept. It was always a particularly harrowing experience. One would awaken in an unfamiliar place, surrounded by people who did not realize that they had a visitor who was not supposed to be there. Within minutes, a terrible tragedy would come. You would witness the hysteria, and then the dream would melt away. My first experience was witnessing the Kennedy assassination. I was inches away from the motorcade when the crack of a gunshot struck down the president. The panic, the crying, the spray of blood felt just as real to me then as seeing you is now. As such, it became a tradition in the family that, once the dream started, The matriarch would sit with the new seer and coach them through their experience. My mother was the oldest living Cromwell at the time, so she sat next to me as I fell asleep the night after the real assassination. As I opened my eyes, they revealed that I was in the middle of a dark intersection. That's when I heard the voice of my mother enter my mind. She told me to look around, get my bearings and that most of the time the dreams began around three minutes prior to the event. She instructed me to look for landmarks to try to figure out where I was. I found a street sign on the corner and I angled my head so that in the dim moonlight I could just make out the word Auburn. I turned and I saw a pair of headlights make its way around the corner heading towards me. Suddenly, a deer jumped out from behind some bushes. I heard the blare of a car horn, and the headlights swerved out of the way of the deer. The car immediately collided with a tree that was just off the road. I ran over to the smoking vehicle and saw two young men, both bleeding from the head. The scene quickly melted away, revealing my mother, who looked concerned. She asked me what I saw, and as I relayed the information to her, she handed me a book and told me to begin writing everything down. She told me that keeping a journal would help keep my skills sharp. But a part of me wondered if it was a way to keep from going insane. Writing things out as factually as possible meant that when everything was said and done, the horrible things that we saw could be closed within the pages of the book, and we could move on with our lives. Unfortunately, I could never quite escape the visions. Even if I did write them out in vivid detail, all that did was solidify the grotesque image of the dead bodies in my mind. No matter what I did, whenever I closed my eyes, My imagination would conjure the dead and dying. This went on for quite some time. It wasn't until I was 16 years old that I decided to change my fate. We were never particularly wealthy. I wore homemade dresses and hand-me-down shoes for most of my childhood. When I became a teenager, I was annoyed by my family's lack of material resources. I would see the other girls in my neighborhood with their fancy clothes, freshly colored and styled hair, And I must admit that I was jealous. I wanted to have what they had. We had an extraordinary gift, so why couldn't we use it to make our situation a little better? I began thinking about the ways that I could use the visions. At first, I tried my hand at fortune telling. But other than the visions of death for random people hundreds of miles away, I didn't make much headway with the locals of my small town. By this time, I was fully over looking at the faces of the dead multiple times a week. That was when I was hit by a stroke of luck. You see, that particular night, I had a vision. But when I took note of my surroundings, I realized that I was in the middle of my hometown. It was the middle of the day, and there were dozens of people bustling about. I decided that instead of hanging around and waiting for some massacre to happen, I would take the few minutes I had to explore. I had always been curious about a bar called the Golden Horseshoe in the middle of town. But because I was underage, I was never allowed in. Now was my chance. I walked past the man checking IDs and into the establishment. I was immediately met with the smell of cigarettes and old wood. I walked around the bar, scanning the new sights, though I wasn't impressed by the common-looking tables and chairs. I walked up to the counter and saw some of the men and the bartender gathered around the radio. The announcer's voice rang tinny from the old radio in an exciting fashion. Then, a declaration. A horse called Betty's Leg had won the race. Cheers and groans simultaneously rang out from the group. Their jubilee was short-lived as a loud concussive boom shook the windows. I looked out the window and saw a black pillar of smoke emanating from the gas station across the street fire rained down from the sky and people screamed as the bodies of those who were closest to the scene were strewn about. I noticed that the shopkeeper from the hardware store across from the bar had left his shop. Soon the dream melted away and I was left with an idea. If I could find the winner of the horse races in my vision then I would be able to bet on them in real life. The only problem with that was the fact that I didn't have any money. So I decided I would let the sight help me with that too. On the day that the explosion was going to take place, I went into the hardware store and began wandering the aisles. I didn't have to wait very long before the explosion shook the small store. People began screaming and I watched as the shopkeeper ran from his post out the front door followed by the patrons. I used the chaos to my advantage and grabbed a handful of cash out of the till. When I had run a sufficient distance away, I pulled the money out of my pocket to count it up. I counted $340 which was more money than I had ever had. A part of me thought that I should just keep this and not push my luck, but I decided that I had already made it this far, so why not go all the way with it? All I had to do now was try to figure out who to place this bet on. It was a few weeks before my visions took place somewhere that was useful to me, but when it finally did, I was only a few counties over from my home. I was at a park, and so I started walking around. That's when I found a man reading a newspaper on a bench. Reading over his shoulder, I saw that a horse named Paul Revere took the top spot. Committing that information to memory, I sat down on the park bench next to the man and only heard the faint scream of a woman in distress when the vision melted away. I wrote everything I could remember from the newspaper in my journal so I wouldn't forget. The next morning, I made my way over to the horse track. I was 18 by then, and that was the minimum age you had to be to place a bet at the track. I walked up to the betting booth and asked the woman permission to place a bet. I filled out some papers with her, and then she asked me which horse I wanted to bet on. Paul Revere, I said nervously. She looked at me with a smile and told me that that horse's odds were 25 to 1. I didn't know what that meant, though I have come to learn that that meant that he was expected to lose. I told her that it was fine and I pulled out my wad of cash. She gave me an incredulous look as I counted out the $340. People bet far larger sums of money all the time, but I'm sure that she wasn't expecting such a large bet from such a poor-looking girl. She did her job and gave me a paper with my bet on it. I didn't realize that I had to buy a ticket separately to watch from the stands, so I didn't have enough money to watch the actual race. All I could do was sit nervously against the wall, listening to the announcer over the loudspeaker. I was beginning to doze off when I heard the crowd erupt and cheers of Paul Revere filled the air. I was so excited that I ran to the betting office and shoved the ticket at the lady. The payout was incredible. I got over $8,000 from that first race. I took the cash in my handbag and quickly ran home. I didn't know what to do with the money, so I shoved it under my bed in a little box. For the next several years... I made sports betting my career. I learned all the different bets and how you could even make money when you lost. This would help me keep a low profile. I didn't want anyone asking questions about where I was getting my information. This meant that I was making smaller bets and looking for worse odds. I would purposely lose money on occasion to maintain the illusion that it was all just good luck. I even took a job at a local grocery store in order to alleviate the suspicion my mother had about where all this money was coming from. One day, she came up to me, and all she said was that she didn't know what I was doing, but fate did not like to be toyed with. I brushed her off, and soon I was able to move out to my own apartment. Things were looking up for me, until I slipped up. Until this point, I always kept my journal tucked neatly on the shelf next to my bed. When I started recording the numbers and names of horses, the book took on a more active role in my life, now living with me at all times. I was on my way to the horse track with my book in tow when a stranger ran up next to me. In a swift and fluid motion, he snatched the book out of my hands and ran down an alley. I took off after him, but he was too quick for me. I came around the corner trying to follow him, but there was no sign of him anywhere. I still remembered some of the details, so I continued on to the track. I was on edge, just thinking about why someone would steal such an unremarkable book from me. When my horse inevitably won, I walked over to the booth to pick up my winnings. But instead of the uniformed bookie that I was used to dealing with, I was met by a short man in a suit who told me to follow him. I was taken up to one of the private boxes that sat at the top of the stadium. The whole room smelled more expensive than my entire life. There were three men in suits, sitting on the couches, smoking cigars and drinking alcohol out of crystal glasses. I was pointed to a man sitting at the head of the room. I walked up to him, and he congratulated me on my win. I told him that I got lucky, and he replied that it seemed that I was lucky quite often. I rebutted that I didn't know what he was talking about. He held up my book, and said that it was good reading and that it seems that the author must be lucky too. He continued that he didn't want any trouble, but he wanted to make a deal and that I had the opportunity to make some real money. He revealed that they had been watching me for a while. Out of all the regular bettors at the track, I had over a 90% win rate. So they tailed me, watched me at my job, at home, and they even tapped my phone to see if I was getting any inside information. I came up clean, with the only evidence being my book. After they were confident that I wasn't some race-fixing stooge or working with an opposite crime family, they decided to give me a shot. All that I had to do was give him a winner. All of his men would make bets separately that would total about two million dollars. And then, when we won, He would give me 2% of all the winnings, whatever they were. I thought that this sounded like a great idea. I was confident that this would work out like the thousands of other times that I did this. I agreed, got my book back, and continued on my way. The next night, in my dream, I woke up in the middle of a street near the Golden Horseshoe again. I felt like this was a sign that I was going to be rich. I walked over to the bar and... As I passed, I saw a ball bounce into the street with a little boy chasing after it. I felt that I knew what was about to happen, but I decided to remain focused on the thought of the money that I was going to make. I walked over to a table near the radio and listened intently. It was a tight race between Jenna's Teeth and Cracker Jack, with the latter being the winner. After getting the information I needed, I heard a commotion outside. I peered out the window and saw a group of people gathered around the body of the little boy laying in front of a car. Reality swiftly materialized. As dawn broke, I was already out the door. I called my contact to tell him to bet on Crackerjack. It was 7 to 2 odds, which wasn't terrible, and I was already calculating what my payout would be. I decided to go get a bite to eat, so I walked down to the Golden Horseshoe to listen to the race in real time. As I got into town, I noticed the short man in the suit following behind me. I nodded at him, and he nodded back. As I walked into the bar, I heard the familiar sound of a ball bouncing from the sidewalk into the street. I quickly found a seat next to the radio to listen to the race. I heard the honking of a car horn, and there was a commotion outside. And, out of morbid curiosity, I glanced out the window. I saw that... The short man in the suit had grabbed the little boy who was chasing the ball into the street. The ball was now wedged into the wheel well of the car. I was shocked. This had never happened before. My visions always came true, and now this little boy was standing on the sidewalk, crying that his ball had been destroyed. I took a step back, dazed. That's when I heard the radio. Jenna's teeth had managed to eke out a victory over Cracker Jack. My mind began racing. I had just lost a very powerful man $2 million, and that's when I heard the door of the bar open. Standing by the front was the short man in the suit, accompanied by two other men. He looked up at me and said, I have a car here for you, Miss Cromwell. It's time to pay up.
1: So she went on for a little bit more after that, just kind of telling us about how, you know, she lost everything and she's now, now she has to perform on the streets to try to make a buck and, you know, and all this stuff. I don't know if any of it's true or not or if she was just trying to like squeeze a little bit of sympathy cash out of us but i mean it definitely worked
0: yeah we we gave her some money (laughs) we we, we gave her way more than
1: what she was asking for you know because we just felt bad yeah at that point i will
0: say that i did notice that she didn't have two fingers on her right hand yeah that's true she was
1: missing her pinky and her ring finger
0: yeah Which, I mean, I don't know
1: They were clean cuts Yeah, I didn't know anything about
0: uh, Yeah, I don't know anything about mob bosses But that seems like a mob boss thing (laughs) to do I've seen enough movies that I know they use those
1: cigarette cutters For more than just cigarettes, you know what I'm saying? You mean cigar cutters? Yeah, cigar cutters, that's
0: what I mean (laughs) Coming from people who don't smoke We we can cut that out Or you can leave it in, cami. I don't care Yeah. Well, anyway um, I don't know when we were leaving, though, she did give us a warning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is why we thought to tell you about this, mm-hmm. Cammie. So she told us that uh, something about, like, you know. We'll we'll run into like an old friend or something that it, but but they've been changed. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like she. That's the thing with these fortune tellers, yeah. dude, is that they're always so vague.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like literally, if we meet anybody that we're vaguely connected to, right, it will have come true. Exactly. So, you yeah, know, whatever. But uh, uh, it, was
0: fun. <laughs> it was kind of fun. It was kind of yeah. fun. Um, so anyway, we're on our way to Ohio yeah. right now. I don't know why I said it like that. Ohio. But, uh, I <laughs> but I don't either. But it's ca- fine. I don't care for it either. Yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> don't do that again. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll catch up with you once we get there.
1: Yeah. We'll let you know once we cross the border. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye.
0: Lower Forty Eight is a production of Winterhawk Podcasting, written and presented by Zach Berry and Austin Meredith, with music by Tyra Orgill.